This is Dr. Robin Axelrod. For the past 15 years, I've been helping children and adults meet their full potential. On our podcast, we're going to share some tips and tricks with you and some of my knowledge on how you can reach your potential and your family's goals. Each week, we'll be highlighting different specialists that can help you understand human development and how to assist your family in living their best lives. Welcome to Ask the Therapist. Welcome to Ask the Therapist on J-Tribe Radio. I'm Kafia Soroka. With us today on the program is Sarah Brescher-Portez. Sarah is a licensed clinical social worker and CASAC who specializes in substance abuse and co-occurring disorders. She's been working for the last seven years at Project Outreach, a substance abuse outpatient program, and she works with patients ages 18 and up who struggle with substance use disorders and mental health disorders. Hi, Sarah. Thank you for joining us. Hi. Thank you for having me. So tell us a little bit about the work that you're doing. So as you mentioned, I work in a substance abuse outpatient program. Uh, So it's a dual diagnosis program, which means that the majority of patients are struggling with both a substance use disorder as well as a mental health diagnosis. So everyone that comes into the program has a primary issue with addiction, and then on top of that, people are also struggling with all kinds of mental health diagnoses from depression, anxiety, uh, ADHD, bipolar, and schizophrenia. Um, And we deal with patients that are 18 and up, and we also treat family members, significant others. So anyone who has a family member who struggles with addiction, whether that person comes to our program or not, can enroll and attend therapy group um, with other family members and receive individual therapy. Okay, Um, so you you work with people um, who struggle with substance abuse and alcohol abuse and also mm -hmm. individually with the family members as well. Right, exactly. And people walk into my office and various stages of their addiction or problematic substance use. So we have some patients that are coming um, voluntarily or involuntary. We have, you know, patients that are legally mandated. We have patients we like to call it their mom-dated, so their mothers or family members are insisting that they get help. Mm -hmm. Um, And we have patients that you know, have been in and out of treatment programs for 10, 20, 30 years, and we have patients who've never been in treatment before, but have just come to realize that they may have been, you know, drinking too much or needing a drink to get through the day or taking too much of their prescription medication, whatever it is. So my role is really to meet the patient where they're at. You know, do they want abstinence and to refrain from everything and all substances, or do they want to just cut down and are finding it hard to do so? And while those may be the initial goals, our goals for the patient long-term are really to uncover and address some of the unresolved issues or reasons why they're using in the first place. So we kind of treat addiction as if it's a symptom of something larger, um, not just the problem itself. And usually a person's drug and alcohol use serves time, some kind of purpose for them. Um, it solves a problem, but now that, now that solution to their problem has become the problem. So 
this makes it difficult to get help because the idea of giving something up that they've become so dependent on can be petrifying. Mm -hmm. um, and what are some of the challenges that you have found when it comes to recognizing um, their consumption of alcohol or drugs as a problem at all? Mm -hmm. Right. So it, it is challenging. Uh, the disease of addiction, so it's an extremely complex disorder. To some extent, it's subjective. You know, addiction manifests itself differently in each individual, but there are also clear objective indicators. For example, you know, a person injecting heroin daily, you know, that's easy to diagnose as a problem, um, but there are other faces of addiction that are not so easily recognizable. I think the simplest way to know if someone's use is problematic is whether it impacts their life negatively. So if their use causes any kind of consequences. Um, the challenge is that denial is a huge component of the disease of addiction. And I heard someone once say, no other disease, um, no, other, no other disease has a part of the disease being that they won't acknowledge they have it. And mm -hmm. so ha and having a problem, um, so because there is that aspect of denial, it can make it very difficult for someone to, to get help and acknowledge it's impacting their life, but everyone around them can see clearly that what's going on is an issue. Um, another challenge is, is that addiction looks different on different people. And so having a problem with alcohol doesn't mean, um, it, it's not just the person who wakes up shaking from alcohol withdrawal and needs to start their day with a drink to feel normal. You know, we can mm -hmm. pretty much all agree that's an issue. But it's, it's also people who don't use drugs or drink daily that, and those people can be hard to identify. Um, but it's, it's really a matter of whether or not it interferes with your life and the lives of the people around you. Yeah, and, and we've, like, we had a guest on in one of our previous um, episodes talking about um, his alcohol and drug addiction, and one of the things that he had said was, um, that he felt like he was able to function and he, he had this, you know, concept of an addict as somebody who's like, you know, falling down on their face and, and not able mm -hmm. to, you know, walk straight. And, and so he felt right. like, well, that's not me and so I don't have a problem. Could you, could you talk a little bit about some of those misconceptions about addiction? Yes, definitely. So people assume that addictions are obvious. Most people kind of conjure up, you know, this picture in their mind um, when they hear the term addict or alcoholic, and usually it's a homeless man sleeping on a park bench, you know, clutching a brown paper bag with a, with a bottle in it. And, and while that picture is not inaccurate, it's only a small fraction of the truth. And so I, I think it's important to realize that Everyone knows someone who is struggling with addiction, whether they know it or not. Mm -hmm. um, most people are surprised when I tell them that 
So in our program, we have a track just for medical professionals. So like any kind of doctors, nurses, nurse practitioners that, that struggle with addiction. And that right there, you know, should challenge a person's idea about addiction, right? Because usually people, when they think of a doctor, that's not the image that they have in their mind of someone who has a problem. Um, so really addiction does not discriminate. So it impacts people of all races, genders, ages, class, religion. Uh, it's really everywhere. Um, so some of the other misconceptions about addiction is that people think that it's about a lack of self-control or um, they believe someone dealing with an addiction is weak or people believe it's like a moral failure, right? So then, so what is it? So how does someone become addicted? Uh, I actually once heard, I heard this TED talk about addiction and the speaker, I believe it was Johan Hari, he spoke about um, this idea that if addiction is just about chemical dependence, meaning that if it was just about our bodies becoming physically dependent on a substance, Mm-hmm. you know, from taking it over and over, then like everyone's grandmothers who went into the hospital for a hip surgery would come out an opiate junkie. Those were his words. Right, right. Which I sounds very funny. Um, you know, given the amount of painkillers that people are given post-surgery, it would make sense that everyone would come out um, having a problem. So then what causes it? Because, you know, I hear a lot of those stories. I hear of people who have had functional lives and then, you know, they had their wisdom teeth pulled or hurt their back or got into a car accident and was prescribed painkillers and then fast forward a few years and they're running out of medications early because their tolerance keeps increasing and they're doctor shopping, trying to get prescribed painkillers from many doctors and they just can't seem to function without the medication. So like what's going on here? Um, Because there's also so many stories about people that doesn't happen to. So the way I like to understand it, it's kind of like this recipe or, you know, baking cookies. You have to have just the right amount of each ingredient, flour, baking powder, like sugar, margarine, in order for the rest to work, right? So in the case of addiction, it's it's like a combination of so many different factors that have to come together in just the right amount, you know, factors like genetic predisposition, environment, people's childhood, childhood, their, you know, different life experiences, trauma, all that has to, like, come together in order for an addiction um, to develop. And everyone's brains are wired differently, and people experience and react to drugs differently. So if your brain is wired a certain way, you may be more susceptible to falling into this um, or going down the path. And this is why it's also so frustrating for some people to understand because they don't experience drugs and alcohol the way someone who is addicted to it does, right? So you don't want to be too quick to judge. Recognize that um, you may not understand that purpose that the drugs or alcohol serves for a person and how scary it can be to, to lose that or have that taken away. Yeah, and you've said, you know, um, for some people, you know, this is a solution to a to a problem. You know, in addition to the exactly. the the part where they're they're physically addicted, in in many circumstances, it sounds like this is also 
you know, um, helping them to deal with emotional things that are going on as well. Mm-hmm. Exactly. And like I said before, that we, we often treat the addiction as a symptom of something else, right? Because it really is um, very much about, you know, not just, it's, it's not just the use that, that is the problem. It's just part of a bigger picture. Mm-hmm. And what are some questions someone who is wondering about their own alcohol consumption or someone else's in their lives, what can they ask to gain a better understanding about whether it is, in fact, a problem? Mm -hmm. Some of the typical questions that we would ask, I think, would be, you know, have you ever felt the need to cut down on your drinking? Uh, Have you ever felt guilty about your drinking? Have people annoyed you by criticizing your drinking? You know, have you made attempts to cut down or abstain from drinking but haven't been successful? Um, Have you said to yourself, I can stop whenever I want, but then when someone suggests you uh, go cold turkey for a month, you last a week, right? So, you know, are you negotiating with yourself about how much you drink or how often you're taking your medications like Adderall or Clonopin or painkillers? you know, are you saying, um, are you making deals with yourself, like, I'm only going to drink at Simcha's or on Shabbos, or no more Friday night drinking, or I'm only going to drink before, I'm only going to drink after 5 p.m. Um, I'm only going to drink in social settings. You know, do you try to control your intake? Um, saying things like, I'm going to drink normally tonight at whatever function it is, and then you look around and pace yourself by matching the people around you and how much they're drinking. So when your friend goes to get their second drink, you think, okay, now, now it's socially acceptable to get a second drink. I'm going to go get one too. Um, and, you know, like I said before, addiction can look very different for, de- for different people. So someone who um, every – Every time they drink, something happens and let's say they embarrass their spouse. Every time they drink, they end up embarrassing um, their spouse. You know, someone who, that, that would become, that would be considered like a consequence um, to your drinking. And then if you, instead of, instead of limiting your, your drinking and realizing that drinking might cause um, you to get into fights, you then... Just avoid the person that you get into arguments with whenever you're drinking. Um, so, you know, people might think that, you know, someone who, who comes home drunk from shul every Shabbos, right, and they end up fighting with family members or, or even not. But if they, it, it's not just about, um, it's not just about frequency, of someone's drinking, it's about, you know, when they do drink, do they find it difficult to stop, right? So, um, but that, again, makes it so, such a challenge to identify because people can say to themselves, well, I only drink in social settings or at a kiddish. How does that make me an alcoholic? Um, But it's really just about how it interferes with your life and the consequences 
consequences that you face because of it. So, you know, I like to use um, allergies as a metaphor. So, you know, take someone who has a peanut allergy, not a deadly one, but they're allergic just enough that every time they have peanuts, they break out in hives or get, you know, extremely uncomfortable. That person would probably take steps to avoid eating peanuts, right? Mm-hmm. So it should be the same for drugs and alcohol. So it's causing you enough consequences that if it was something else, you would, you would stay away from it. Um, but if you find that you aren't able to do that, that might be a sign that things are, are a problem. Yeah, and you said there's, you know, the, the, um, there's an element of denial that's kind of baked into the disease itself. And because of that, and because there may be consequences, um, many times what it seems like happens is the people around you are really clued into it before the, the individual themselves. Right. Um, so, right. you know, I, I know that probably family members or loved ones would want to help, but some may not know how. Um, do you have any suggestions mm-hmm. for for loved ones who are dealing yeah, with somebody so, who's struggling with, with um, alcohol or, or substance abuse? Mm-hmm. Yes, it, it can be very tricky because, you know, sometimes when someone's use has become out of hand, um, things can get very tense in the home and people can find themselves walking on eggshells around that person, not wanting to bring things up. Um, but you do want to try and express concern, you know, in a loving and, and non-judgmental way. You know, you want to say, I'm worried about you. Um, but I think the, the most important message that I can give over is that, you know, if you have a family member that is struggling Um, and isn't ready to acknowledge that they have a problem, the best thing that you can do is go and get help and support for yourself. So it's tempting to think, you know, I don't have a problem. They do. You know, why should I get help? But addiction affects the entire family. And you need to find yourself support, whether it's attending a support group or going to a therapist. Um, There's something called Al-Anon which is like Alcoholics Anonymous for family members. Uh, It's a support group for family members of people struggling with addiction, and they have meetings, you know, all over and all the time. Um, But it can be really scary watching someone you love go through this, and it can feel, you can feel very helpless, um, like everything's out of control. But the more out of control and helpless that you feel, really the less capable you are of being able to help someone and be there for someone else, right? So that's why it is so important for you to go and get help um, for yourself because you cannot change anyone and you can't control anyone other than you. And you had mentioned that you do work with family members. Can you talk a little bit more about the work that you do when family members come in to to do some of their own work? Sure. So it's, it's really about, you know, kind of helping them navigate their life that has kind of bec- like come to revolve around the person in the family that's using. Um, in, in many, it, it can happen, it can start off in a subtle way, but, but it really impacts and changes the dynamic of the whole family. So if it's a, if it's a spouse and 
you know, or a sibling, often they they say like, I can't believe it got it got this bad or it got to this place. Um, but one of the things we help them do is recognize whether any of their behaviors have been enabling the the addiction and and what they can do to be supportive to their to their family member um, without enabling. And that's important because, you know, tough love doesn't really work in this area. You know, addiction is such an isolating disease. People feel so alone and isolated and in their heads that you don't want to back them into a corner any more than they already feel. So you want, to, you want the family members to be able to love and support um, the family member that's struggling but in a healthy way. Um, we also help them realize that, you know, relapse is, is a part of recovery. So there's going to be slips and there's going to be setbacks, and that's all part of the process, and that's not the only way that we measure, we measure success, and they shouldn't either. So even if a family member, um, you know, relapses and uses again, it doesn't there, – there's no need for them to, you know, feel angry or feel rejected or hurt or take it personally because it's about the person and his own journey with addiction and it's not a reflection of them. Mm-hmm. And um, can you also describe, because you, we were, you were just mentioning um, enabling versus support, can you help to clarify a little bit about what some of the differences are? Um, I think enabling is more about, you know, the example I used before, if every time the person drinks and they come home and get into, get into arguments with everyone, right? An enabler would kind of, um, when their, let's say, spouse is coming home, they would, you know, kind of send, send the children upstairs so they wouldn't see instead of trying to address the fact that, that their spouse is having a problem, well, you wouldn't want to address it in that moment. But in general, it's kind of like rearranging your life in a way that um, kind of avoid, like helps you avoid dealing with, with the issue. Mm-hmm. And if somebody were to be wondering about whether they um, do have a problem or whether or if they know they do or are struggling with with substance or alcohol abuse um, what would you want someone going through it to know um, I think you know I'd want them to know that you know there is hope you're not alone and it can be really scary to acknowledge that you have a problem because, you know, then what? Then your mind starts racing about what will the rest of your life look like? You know, I'm never going to be able to drink again or go to barbecues and enjoy myself. And, but you need to focus on right now. You know, if your life is becoming unmanageable, chances are that, you know, and chances are you are miserable and you don't need to live like that. So it's important to realize that you know, the vicious cycle of addiction. You know, often people get to a point where they're no longer using to feel good. They're just using to avoid feeling bad. So getting high doesn't 
doesn't work. There's no euphoria, but being sober is so miserable. Um, and then, you know, when a person is sober, the guilt and the shame can be so unbearable that the only way they know how to numb themselves is to avoid and avoid those feelings is by using. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, so I would want someone to know that that there, usually there's most likely a per, you're using because you're using some kind of substance um, because, for a reason. So, you know, you're smoking pot maybe to cope with anxiety or drinking to feel less depressed. You're self-medicating. And if your way of self-medicating worked, you know, if your way of self-medicating, like, it, it works until it doesn't. Um, and, and, of course, it works because, and, of course, it made you feel good because otherwise you would not have, have kept doing it. Right? So, again, it can be so scary to think about losing those things, losing that substance or alcohol um, because it's something that has made you feel so much better in the past. And I, I think I'd also want someone to know that when, when, they, come for, when they go for help, they're, they're not just going to stop using they're going to feel better. You know, they're, gonna, they're, they're stopping to use so they can learn how to cope in other ways and learn how to, you know, just improve their quality of life. Because so often people think that, you know, all they need to do is stop drinking or stop using drugs and then everything will be fine. But really, removing the drugs and alcohol from the equation, it doesn't solve the problem. It, it just really unveils it. You know, that's why getting sober is so hard because you're exposing yourself to painful feelings that you're trying to cover up. And, um, and again, it, it could be very scary. Mm-hmm. But, you, again, you are not alone, and there is, there is hope. Yeah. Uh, thank you. Thank you for that. Um, can you tell us a little bit about treatment options that are available for for anyone who is at that point and is looking for sure. help? Sure. So I think, you know, it's important to acknowledge that that someone doesn't develop an addiction overnight. So addiction can't be solved overnight. You know, it, it takes time. And it's tempting to want to, you know, send people off to a drug rehab in, in Florida um, that has a spa and kind of fix them and then they'll be sent back and they'll be fine. And, you know, while I do think inpatient programs work and are very important and great, the work doesn't end when a person comes home. Um, so it, it's kind of like someone who, who wants to get into shape. You know, they, they go to the gym every day and eat healthy, and, but once they reach their goal, they don't stop going to the gym. They have to keep going back. So it, it, is, um, it is important to, you know, that's, and obviously I'm biased because I work in an outpatient program, um, but I do think that, you know, receiving therapy on an ongoing basis can be very helpful. Um, but just to clarify a little bit about treatment, so Generally, there's, you know, detox programs, inpatient programs, and outpatient programs. 
Um, so detox is where someone would go. It's usually in a hospital setting, and that is um, to help people who are physically dependent on the substance get off of that in a safe and controlled environment. So they're monitored and um, kind of make sure that make, people make sure that they're okay. Um, and then an inpatient program is um, where people go and they stay overnight. Um, and they, you know, generally there's like a lot of group therapy that goes on and individual therapy and you learn different skills on how to cope with life without the use of drugs or alcohol. Um, and then outpatient programs are very much like a, a mental health clinic. So you go in, I mean, there's all different types of, within an outpatient program, there's all different tracks you can do, like intensive outpatient, where you go to groups multiple days a week. Um, but in our program, we, we, so we do have intensive outpatient, um, but we also have standard outpatient, so people can come for a couple groups a week. And on top of that, everyone is generally in individual therapy at least once a week. Um, and then there's also, of course, you know, AA, so Alcoholics Anonymous and Narcotics Anonymous and every other kind of anonymous you can think of. Um, and that's a support group, and that, you know, helps people. Um, a big part of that is the social aspect, so people can go and be with others that have gone through similar experiences that they have been through. Okay. Um, and do you know of any resources that uh, people can contact if they're looking to connect with support, find out a little bit more about treatment options or what would be appropriate for them? So you can always, I mean, you definitely Google things. Um, and if you're a family member, you can look up Al-Anon and try to find support, support groups and meetings nearby. Um, but you, you really, I think there's a lot more awareness about addiction than, than there was, you know, even five years ago. So if you have a doctor that you, that you feel comfortable with, you can talk to a doctor. Um, there's a lot of community-based organizations that help with referrals like Amudin and Achiezer, um, places like that that you, can, that you can reach out to. Okay. Um, well, thank you so much, Sarah, for, for coming on and talking to us about, uh, about this really important subject. And um, thank you for all of the incredible work that you're doing in this area. Of course. My pleasure. Um, Thank you for having me on. <laughs> well, it's our pleasure to have you. And um, that is our show, everybody. Join us next week at 9 at jtriberadio.com. And thank you for being with us tonight.